0: Hello and welcome to Generation Squeeze's hard truths podcast. My name is Umair. I am the knowledge to action lead with Gen Squeeze. I'm joined by my colleagues, Andrea Long, who's our senior director of research and knowledge mobilization, as well as Paul Kershaw, the founder of Gen Squeeze and a policy professor at UBC. How are you both doing? Excited to be back on the pod.
1: Yeah. Nice to uh, launch the 2023 pod year.
0: Yeah, this is our first podcast. And, you know, every time I read out your name as part of my intro, Paul, I feel like I kind of say your last name weird. I don't know if you find that.
2: I never find that, but I am so glad that other people experience it. I find not by my own name, but I have to know when I'm hosting other people or welcoming me onto something like, oh, last names are always annoying and um, or, you know, can be challenging to get quite nailed. So no, you're nailing it. I wouldn't care either way.
0: Well, I just I think it's like part of the flow of how I'm of what I'm saying. So, like, if I was just to say your name, I would say Paul Kershaw, but I think it comes out as like Kershaw, like a kind of <laughs> you know, like the last part is anyway. This is not <laughs> that important.
2: I hope people are laughing at us at now. If we keep this part in or we edit it out, I think that's funny. No, it's all good. However, you want to say the two syllables of my name.
0: Fair enough. Um. So today we're doing something a bit different. We're talking about the social media influencer, Andrew Tate, and uh, having a discussion based on the idea that his popularity is a, is a symptom of our broken intergenerational system. This is a bit different for a couple of reasons. First of all, I guess our, our podcast usually features discussions on topics that we research and do advocacy around. Those topics tend to be within their domains of economics and politics, issues like housing affordability, government budgets climate change, electoral engagement, and so on. Uh, And today's topic happens to be within the domain of culture, which is not something that Gensqueeze has a lot of expertise in. There's another feature here, which also has to do with lack of expertise, actually. And that's that Paul and Andrea actually don't know very much about Andrew Tate. You know, I brought this up with them yesterday, we were having a meeting, and I asked, do you know who Andrew Tate is? And there was about 10 seconds of silence and then people started to google and then there was this like oh yes yes i've heard about this this guy who got arrested Uh, something to do with greta thunberg romania right that's my only interaction
1: (laughs) interaction with greta (laughs) exactly i heard about the pizza com the pizza exchange
0: (laughs) yeah so then you know there's a second sort of issue of uh, uh, there of like well so then why are we talking about it and the reason I think that we want to have this discussion is because the overall frame that our work takes place within, uh, that is the, the frame of intergenerational fairness, I think that gives us a, a unique entry point into the discussion about Andrew Tate. And I think the fact that, you know, Paul and Andrea, you, you don't uh, know much about this guy, um, that actually is also very refreshing. Um, and it, I think it all it speaks to the the intergenerational divide that that I also want to raise, and so I I think actually it's it's something that is a plus in this conversation, and you know it's not as if like people like Andrew Tate and misogyny haven't existed in in previous eras.
2: No one's ever called me old on our podcast before, but I'm feeling like that's about to happen. I thought I was holding on to like middle age for sure, man, but desperately feeling that. Uh, I think you're about to put me in the old category.
0: Well, I, I'm also old in this in this discussion. You know, I'm in my mid-30s, and I guess I do fall within the range of people who are among Andrew Tate's most fervent uh, followers, young men. But, you know, a lot of it is, like, younger men, and including teenagers. And so I, I'm probably in the upper sort of end of that. And so I, I was telling you both yesterday that, you know, YouTube has been recommending me andrew tate videos for quite a while and i have been watching them i because i i take interest in these things i mean i don't like what he's saying but i you know anything that has an impact is to me something that needs to be taken seriously Uh, and so i you know i probably spend more time listening to people like that than than i'd like to um But I I was thinking about how to structure this discussion. And one of the ways I wanted to do it was to sort of play clips of Andrew Tate and talk about him specifically and sort of get your reaction and and try to have a a more general conversation based on that. But I think I don't know if that will be helpful, partly because playing clips of him and the kind of vulgarity that's a part of that. I don't know if I want to listen to that. I don't want if, if I want you to listen to it or our audience to listen to it. In this context, I and I think we uh, the more general sort of uh, conversation we can have, if we can get into that to begin with, is is probably where our strengths are. I think other people are having lots of discussions of the specifics of Andrew Tate. So uh, let me then frame it a bit more before we jump in. Um, so you know, older generations. I think at gen squeeze we sort of have this perspective that older generations have not been able to pass on the baton to younger people in a way that allows for sustained access to basic standards of life and dignity Um, so there's this intergenerational divide and i guess the point i'm trying to make is that the popularity of andrew tate is a cultural manifestation of that divide and so part of it is that people like andrew tate are able to highlight the indignities that younger generations face You know, he'll talk about the fact that young men in his audience, you know, have low-paying jobs. You know, many aren't able to move out of their parents' homes and build lives of their own, etc. And then he'll offer a solution, or or he offers himself as an example to look up to. And if young men adopt a macho, hyper-masculine attitude, you know, they grow big muscles, they're willing to get ahead by any means necessary, even if it involves engaging in deceit and exploiting those around them, you know, if they're able to do this, they they too can become successful. They drive fast cars, date beautiful women, smoke cigars, party on big yachts, and so on. And I wonder what you think. I, I mean, how, do, how does that sound as a framing for our discussion?
2: Yeah. Oh, OK. Well, I, I definitely lean into the idea that Gen Squeeze over our first decade was highlighting how a younger demographic, where it's where we tend to define those in their 20s, 30s, and 40s. You know, we talk about them being squeezed. <laughs> when you're when you're squeezed, you can squeeze back. You know, take that lemon, turn it into lemonade. We could have been generation screwed, and there actually are groups out there. You, could, you know, there is a way in which the broken intergenerational system is leaving a really lousy deal in terms of hard work not paying off. This plays out in particularly harmful ways culturally, you might say, for for men, and often in particular you know, you can see a lot of the frustration and bubbling up in populism in a range of places about, you know, sort of younger white men who have historically been, you know, somewhat privileged and somehow the way in which the economy has evolved, the privilege that comes with being a a white boy, I am one by the way, um, isn't being rewarded like it used to. And suddenly people, you know, that causes anger and frustration. And I think so Jan Squeeze has often been in the business, like, how do we foment constructive anger? And I think the kind of work that and the popularity that Tate has achieved is, you know, fomenting anger and tapping into that in a more successful way within Gen Squeeze. I'll, I'll confess from the strategy, from the standpoint of trying to influence public opinion, I would, you know, a group like Gen Squeeze, which has a relatively modest following in the tens of thousands, would be envious of the size of his audience. And so I'm glad that you as part of the Gen Squeeze team pays attention to, you know, how does someone like Tate become successful at attracting so many people? Because we want that kind of intel as we're trying to get better at, you know, attracting and growing the size of our audience because we know that our power grows with the influence of our network, which is partly about our size. So I'll pause there. I think I think maybe you're putting to Gen Squeeze, why aren't we more effective at attracting people who are, you know, younger people who are angry, young men who are angry? Uh, And honing that anger in towards some good collective change. And that is a worthwhile conversation for us to have because we haven't been that successful at tapping into that anger. And I guess the last observation I'll make, just um, thinking back to the most recent episode that we published where Angie and I were talking about the theme of love in a love letter actually that Angie wrote in response to Jonathan who'd said you know you're not angry enough you're not taking the gloves off enough and I think to some degree whether you intended it or not Umair you're carrying on that very conversation from the last episode of like what's you know what's the role of anger in the work that we're doing? Is there a constructive way to hone it? Or is this sort of the love theme that Angie so often brings into the work? Is that the more effective way to attract people's engagement in a meaningful, productive way as we try to renew democracy?
1: Yeah, well, I have to admit, I had my doubts about this topic. I think mostly because it's an uncomfortable space for me. I think these kinds of cultural diatribes that take place. I mean, I know they're out there, we're all exposed to them to some degree. And I mean, I agree, I think it's good to be aware of what captures attention, even if it's not necessarily the kind of attention that one wants per se, or don't see it as as constructive as it could be. But it's it's a it's a facet of what is happening in the contemporary context. And I think you're framing about how it connects to Jen Squeezes' issues around fairness Uh, a sense that younger generations, you know, aren't, as you said, they're not receiving the baton from their parents and grandparents in the way that, uh, way that is fair, and a way that it's going to set them up for success and to, you know, sort of fulfill this sense of the, you know, what we owe future generations that, you know, we want our kids to be better off than we were, we want them to have or at least an equal shot, if not a better shot than we did. And I think there is a growing sense that we're not achieving that, I guess where I depart from the uh, what I know of the Andrew Tate and other similar narratives, which albeit is not all that much, is, you know, you, you said at the beginning, Omer, like he's capturing the attention of young people, especially young men who are frustrated and angry, and he's trying to offer solutions, you know, I'm not really sure I want to actually... <laughs> Bestow the word solution on what he's offering. <laughs> uh, I think those are responses, maybe, but I don't think they're solutions. Uh, and I think, you know, it kind of exposes an uncomfortable space that Jen Squee struggles with, too. And that, you know, to what extent do we try and say to older folks, like, we need your solidarity, we need you to see yourself in the landscape of the set of issues that we're talking about around gender fairness, because you know, without that constituency, we're not going to be able to have the political power, the influence, the the kind of to make the kind of change that we need. Um, so, you know, I don't think the Andrew Tate type strategy is a solidarity focused strategy, clearly, and we wrestle with how to do that too. as Paul just said, you know, we do get people who are saying, like, why? Why are you so nice? Like why don't you just call it like it is and talk about how folks are being screwed by decisions made by previous generations. Um, but, you know that, that the vision is is a challenging one. So, you know, it's an interesting opportunity to, this is a new angle for us to sort of muse about these issues. So I I think it's worthwhile. And I'll be interested to see what the folks listening there have to say about, you know, trying to put generational fairness uh, in the context of these sorts of, you know, debates that are happening that aren't at all touching on that theme, but that we see the connection.
2: And you know, as I listen, to Andrea, I, th- I think that Gen Squeeze often engages in, you know, in, in storytelling. Thinking about who's the hero of the story, we often want our listeners, our allies, to be the heroes of the story. Hey, if we renew democracy together, we can change this broken system. But when you think about stories, they often imply villains, and I think that, you know, whether it's Andrew Tate's implying a, a particular kind of villain, or I think about another person who's really effective at stoking anger amongst young men right now—the polling showing in Canada, which is Mr. Poliev of the Conservative Party you know, some of the success that they have, some of the talent they have at communicating is who they who they get people to be angry with and blame. And, and there's, Jen Squeeze has often said that the deck is stacked against younger Canadians. That's why hard work doesn't pay off. So you go to school longer, pay more for the privileged land, jobs that pay less to face way higher housing prices. You get less support when you want to start your families. You inherit large government debts and a large climate problem. That's a stacked deck. And, and then often you might think it implies that, you know, the deal has been rigged. I think the moment that we might be giving rise to an era, like the, de- you know, the deck is stacked against you. The deal's been rigged. The game has been rigged. And so then you can understand why clever communicators say, well, if the deal's rigged against you, then screw the rules. Don't play by the rules. You can be this macho, deceitful, cheating kind of person. Uh, and if you're not, you're just a sucker. And I wonder if that's like, why would anyone want to be a sucker? In a broken system that actually gives rise to the kind of some of the kind of popularity that Andrew Tate enjoys. And they, you know, like, ah, if I just don't act like a sucker, that's my simple solution. There's my silver bullet. And so, you know, I put that back to you, Umair. you know, do you think there's, there's a kernel of wisdom in that observation about how our work relates to the popularity of Tate and potentially why, you know, we don't play the sucker theme in quite the same way. And I don't think we have an op, I don't think we have a solution that we offer to people like don't be a sucker, even though we've said the game's rigged and the deck's stacked against you.
0: Yeah. So I actually, one of the questions that I wanted to ask, uh, which we've already gotten into is, you know, given that we are in some some ways talking about similar problems or at least highlighting similar problems and at least some of our constituency overlaps with Andrew Tate's. The question I wanted to ask was, you know, why is someone like that far more successful at attracting an audience than we are, which Paul you've already gotten into. And I think uh, Andrew made a really great observation in in saying that my suggestion that Andrew Tate is offering solutions is perhaps not the right way to put it. He's He's offering a response. And I think maybe that's part of the answer to the question I just posed. That it's, you know, he, he doesn't have a, a systemic critique or a systemic analysis. Or to the extent that he does, you know, it's it's the feminization of society. It's people getting soft. And the in extent that he, that he has a solution, it's a very individualistic kind of, you just need to take care of yourself attitude. Which isn't our approach, obviously. Ours is a more complicated framing and so that is is part of the reason why we're having a tougher time.
1: Yeah, I think you really like so there's another theme that we talk about a lot at Gen Squeeze, which is around the fact we're trying to embrace complexity, right? We're we're, at, we're not the organization that wants to boil things down to a simple, you know, soundbite, yes or no, oh blame that person, it's that person's fault, it's this group's fault. Um, that you're struggling, uh, or there to blame for the problems that you're facing. So, um, I mean, I think you're right in like, he's not only is he not offering a systemic response, but he's also not offering a response that actually (laughs) engages with the complexity of some of these issues that I think are at the root of uh, things that he's talking about. And from that standpoint, it's not surprising that we struggle to gain the traction that he seems to get fairly easily, because we're wanting to actually ask people, ask for people's attention for longer than it takes to point the finger. Uh, We're wanting to ask people to actually think about the different facets of a problem, the fact that there isn't a silver bullet, you know, something that if you have watched or heard or read anything from Jen Squeeze, you've probably heard that line, there's no silver bullet, there's silver buckshot. You have to look at a range of actions working together, uh, in order to fix some of the more complicated issues facing us today, and I think that, from a calm standpoint, is so much more challenging to try and, and convey, a- and to try and ask for people's attention long enough to hang with us to the, you know, conclusions that then we hope are motivating in terms of identifying the solutions that we're we're putting forward.
2: Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense to me, Andrea. I wonder though if we can't evade, you know, the, the language of misogyny that Umair raised early on, uh, and. <clears throat> We know a Gen Squeeze, I think we actually intentionally at Gen Squeeze, especially in Gen Squeeze 1.0 when we were so anchored around our New Deal for Families, like Gen Squeeze is actually designed to be coming from the feminist movement. It is designed to complement many feminist discourses. Um, And we were worried, like, why does our country underinvest in childcare? Why does our country not organize parental leave to attract dads to share caregiving work at home uh, alongside moms so that we'd have such a gendered division of labor at home, which then gives rise to a gendered division of labor and earnings and wealth and power in the economy? And that continues to be the the anchor policies around which we focus so much of our family affordability work. And built into it intentionally, our design details for policy prescriptions say, men, generally, amongst all of our diversity, we have to acknowledge the unfair power that we have you know, that we've wielded over time, we have, you know, unearned privilege, that we now need to be part of the solution and sort of sharing that power better and also caring enough not to be violent. You don't hear the language in Gen Squeeze so much about, you know, care enough not to be violent. But when I think about the origins of Gen Squeeze and trying to disrupt the gender division of labor, I go back to some of my first writings as an early academic, it was called Carefare, Rethinking the Responsibilities and Rights of Citizenship. And it was intentionally about designing policies that men would participate in the disruption of their under privilege. And I actually think from in terms of like, I think that's kind of a sexy thing to do. But I think Andrew Tate has a very different take on what makes a sexy guy. And definitely that feminized approach to, uh, you know, how I was just portraying masculinity wouldn't sit well with his cohort. But I think to some degree, that's, you know, a part of the cultural fight that's on on right now. And, you know, I ask you, you know, how do you see Andrew Tate in response to like, you know, as a counter narrative to the Me Too movement and its critical role in society right now, amir
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that's clearly a part of its origins, right? And it's interesting because we we've had for at least a decade now, this sort of internet-based male chauvinism. And every few years, it kind of gets a new name. You know, a few years ago, it was the men's rights movement, And then we had this sort of incel culture, there was Gamergate, but yeah, that's clearly, there is this kind of call and response that, that goes on. Right. Um, but I wanted, I was wondering actually, if I could take a a step back and just in thinking about this, you know, I've, I've wondered to what extent is the intergenerational divide that's hanging over us? To what extent is that just a kind of a, a feature of modern society? And so, like, you know, part of this is, like, teenage boys who have access to social media and have their own sort of subculture. And they're influenced by things in, in, in ways that their parents uh, or adults in, in their lives, whether they're teachers or otherwise, they, they don't really know about. And, you know, when I think about my own son, and he's going to be a teenager before long
2: don't give up the next decade so quickly before you see
0: <laughs> oh well and two two years have gone by so quickly i don't know where where they went but you know i wonder about this because i you know to what extent is there going to be this divide
1: i mean i think i think you've got to be right on some level um like there's there are going to be divides like if for no other reason than you know society continues to evolve technology evolves like that creates, you know, different context for our experiences and our people who influence us and whatnot. I think, though, that part of what Jen Squeeze is saying is that there is a interesting, like, sort of economic dimension to the divide that we're talking about now in terms of like the way we've structured our our programs and our expectations and our sense of entitlements um to and from each other um that emerged from like that sort of post-war era when we were all into like nation building and rah-rah we need to support each other and we need to build our safety net And, you know, we really successfully did that for a couple of generations, but we didn't do it. We didn't anticipate some of the broader demographic and other changes that are occurring now, which are putting the sustainability of, you know, our expectations around those, the way in which we've structured those programs in question and having... You know, really profoundly harmful consequences for younger generations now. So I think th- maybe that's not the only point in time where that has occurred, but I think that's like a different dimension to a generational divide than what we see through like, things like technological change or other
2: other pieces. What do you think, Paul? I think it's really well said, so maybe, maybe I can try and pick up on that and expand. See, you might think that a generation squeeze, because we use that language about generations, that we're actually an organization that cares about the kind of quote-unquote pop cultural differences between generations. Not our interests. I remember back in the day when I was thinking about it should be the theme song for Jen Squeeze and The Who. So, you know, the famous band from the 70s, a boomer band, they had a song talking about my generation. I'm like, oh, we should maybe like use that as our, you know, as our theme song because it's relevant for, you know, the generational theme. And if you listen to the lyrics on that song, like The Who are literally talking about baby boomers wanting their parents' generation to kind of like metaphorically die and leave space for them. And I think that that's a pretty common thing, generation after generation after generation. I regularly hear Gen Xers, who are kind of like those 40s group, you know, piss on millennials. It's actually already interesting to hear millennials who are now more established in their work spheres talking about how Gen Zers are, you know, lazy or want something different in their workspace and whatnot. And so I think it's kind of a typical human phenomena in cultures to have interesting tension and strife between different age groups gen squeeze doesn't care gen squeeze just as andrea said is like no at the systems level the system is rewarding hard work now less than it did in the past in part because it's rewarding people who got into the system earlier with more wealth accumulation which is then coming at the expense of affordability for those who follow. And or it's rewarding people who came earlier to pollute more without paying for it and then leaving major costs for those who follow. Or it's saying we have more political power now, in part because younger people are less likely to vote, or if you're younger than 18, you can't vote. And we're going to organize our political power to use tax dollars for these things that matter to us at this life course stage and then leave the crumbs left over for those who follow. These are the systems. That's the unfairness. That is the broken system that Jen Squeeze is saying, we need to vanquish. We need to be these rebels with the cause who disrupt the status quo and say we've got to abide by that generational golden rule do for other generations what they would want done to them that we need to be good stewards of what's sacred the healthy childhood home and planet that we have to plan for young and old alike and those who follow thereafter. And so there're going to be technological divides and you know and range of sort of pop culture idea divides and musical tastes will vary. But that's not what Jen Squeeze is talking about. And the moment that somebody like Andrew Tate invokes misogyny as the response, that's not a new theme. (laughs) There's been misogyny built into age group after age group after age group. That's not some new pop culture thing. That's just an old trope uh for those with power to then wield over others and um i think when you know when men have traditionally been expected to be breadwinners and when breadwinning is harder now than it was for the baby boomer generation because earnings can't keep up pace with a major cost of living that then does create a great deal of anxiety and fear and worry and you know can give rise to mental ill health where you know then the anger that can be attracted by misogyny, or maybe it's racism against people who aren't, you know, or newcomers who aren't white, or anger at, you know, the movement toward truth and reconciliation, talking about land back when people are like, I can't afford rent. You know, I think that when those who've been part of a group that have been privileged, and i am definitely that... When some members of that group aren't benefiting from that privilege as much, then it's easier for them to invoke these other power dynamics as they try and claw and scrape to retain some of that privilege that's no longer paying off.
0: Yeah, I think that's perfect. Um, If I may sort of take what you say and, and put it into my own terms here, I guess, you know, we're going to have technological... Sub subcultural sort of div- divides, but that doesn't mean that we need to have a moral divide between generations. And I think, to the extent that we do, hmm. it, uh, you know, it, again, is, is in part at least uh, a reflection of the economic challenges that many young people are facing.
2: Can I just tap in on the moral divide language? I thought it was really cool. I think in some regards, though, the moral divide can be powerful. I think demographics and the growth and the power of younger people is why... The queer movement is more likely to thrive Why we are often actually beating down misogyny and getting closer to visions of gender equality, less of a glass ceiling and so on. Uh, so I, I think we want younger generations to be able to come and push and say, huh, you know, your take on these issues actually isn't that moral but we always have to recognize that those who've come before have this imbalance in power in terms of just the sheer amount of time they've been able to be present they've been the people setting the rules of the game or at least following them and sustaining them over time and we have an expectation to ask them have you been good stewards and i think that's where we're falling down have you been planning for all ages not just your own
0: yeah i guess i'm just thinking about it from this perspective of a parent who let's say discovers that their you know son is a fan of Andrew Tate and is horrified like oh you know I don't believe these things what does my son think that women need to be put down and and that sort of thing.
1: I also like that idea of moral divide I think we should think more about that over time. Um, I guess I was just thinking about the whole misogyny theme and like I already said I, I don't know what Andrew Tate says specifically about women although it doesn't sound good so I'm not sure I'm gonna check it out in any more detail but Like, I guess I also wonder, like, well, first of all, he hasn't cornered the market on that. (laughs) Like, as Paul said, it's not like that's new. Uh, It's not like we haven't had people making those kinds of arguments before. And so I guess like, on the one hand, I suppose I don't want to suggest that he's making some novel argument here. And like, he somehow deserves credit for like a new take on these issues. It's just ridiculous. Like, of course, that's not the case. And like, on the other hand, I don't know. I mean, yes, he's attracting young men, I guess, um, from from what his followers are suggesting. But I guess I also don't want to lump young men all into that uh, into that category either. I think there's plenty of examples of young men a- and other young people and other old people who are actively resisting those kinds of interpretations and framing. So. I think from the standpoint of thinking about power and influence that people like him have, just because he's got a big number of asked and name on Twitter or Facebook or whatever, I don't think we should necessarily assume that all those people subscribe to the views that he's putting out there and, and sort of let us increase his power by thinking that, <laughs> you know, I think we should actually resist that interpretation. So anyway, that's... Uh, I guess that's more of a visceral reaction from me of in hearing how you've been describing some of the things, um, Umair, that are part of his content.
2: I was thinking back to another theme that Andrea raised around the complexity theme and Edge and, and Squeeze were, were torn between... How do we boil down something to its essence and give people a message that you can convey in a few seconds that can stick versus letting people know, you know, we can't offer you the solution to housing unaffordability or intergenerational unfairness or this broken healthcare system in 280 characters. And so then it has me thinking about like a broader cultural theme where in this era of populism, it's become quite common to reject expertise. And to imply that, you know, those with book learning don't really know what's happening. And and so I, I don't know, you know, it's at uh, the academy, it's where I work, I'm a prof, you know, I tend to, yeah you know, I think about this sometimes and tend to try and resist it. But there is something about this cultural moment that I suspect may be different from the past, where in the past, people were attracted to expertise, and that would have been valued. I think right now, with the moment of populism, there's an openness to rejecting it out of hand for fear like the people who are you know the, the it's a different kind of elite oh those kinds of, that's the liberal elite maybe that's what it is. Um, and so there's a rejection of that elite piece. And I wonder if, you know, Gen squeeze conveys that kind of elitism where we brag about being rooted in the academy. We very routinely say it's not simple and we got to, you know, deal with the complexity. Hence, we have our comprehensive solutions. And here's we're picking on this one part right now. Here's why, you know, our hard truth is shared in this context of, you know, we all share to some degree a certain responsibility. All of us need to be better. It can't just be angry at somebody else who's the problem, and so I wonder if we know that's a hard message, and maybe that's part and parcel of why our audience is but a fraction of those who are more likely to sell, making us angry at a range of others who a range of other elites broadly understood, and so I I wonder if that anti elitism you know, is part and parcel of how our focus on, you know, the the evidence from the academy, you know, works maybe against us to some degree, and that somebody like Andrew Tate's the exact opposite of that.
0: So, Andrew Tate, actually, speaking of this, has jumped onto the anti-vaccine shtick, and, uh, you know, he has... What a shock. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and he talks a lot about how, you know, our education system is a waste of time, if he has kids, he's going to not send them to school. He's going to homeschool them. And then he, of course, has his, I don't know if you know about his, Hustlers University that people pay $50 a month to attend.
2: Okay, clearly Gin Squeeze needs a strategy not to be, you know, intergenerational inequity suckers. We, we got to we gotta compete on this front.
1: Do you, do you think, Humair, that the word populist, like would would Andrew Tate locate himself on the spectrum of populists, you know, along with, you know, the Trumps and others of the world do you think that's something he would a label he would use
0: I well i I, i've seen him compare himself to socrates um really that's a i don't know if he
2: (laughs) can you show me that youtube video actually that might be fun
0: yeah i i I can go look for it we're all into socratic dialogue here
1: well i guess what i don't uh, there's so many things i don't understand about the emergence of this populism notion. But I guess one of the most fundamental ones I don't understand is I don't know how the people who actually like align themselves with those those leaders just don't find it so insulting. Like it's it's such a like I just find it so condescending the notion that there's you know like oh I'm like the little person who needs my marginalized views defended by these other people who, you know, sort of triumph over me culturally or economically or whatever way it is. Um, like, it just it just seems like such a marginalizing perspective. I, I don't know, like, I guess maybe this people's support for those ideas is coming from the fact that they feel marginalized and so they're wanting someone to validate that. But, you know, the way in which populism has come to be defined as we don't care about science, we don't care about facts, we don't care about education, like, you know, and anything goes, it's my truth kind of notion. Um, like, I, I don't know, I just find that I find that as like an incredibly condescending perspective to attach to people who I think, you know, have legitimate concerns, like young men, uh, other young people, like they do have legitimate concerns. And I don't think we can boil it down to some abstract elite force that's like, I don't know, suppressing their interests. So sorry, that was a little rant on populism. But think about, think about
2: the Pierre Polyev, who's uh, we've talked about it other times of the podcast, and as somebody who is a communicator, uh, I-, I admire. I think he's a strong communicator, and uh, he doesn't use the language of elites these days. But he must be the person who says the word "gatekeeper" more often than any other uh, thought leader in the country right now. And I think that that gatekeeper is, you know, the sort of synonym catch-all for this sort of group of, of again, isn't it uh, some kind of elite somehow? You know, some something different than the audience that he's talking to that are blocking your way. And um, I guess, you know, maybe just to the degree where you bring it back to the misogyny space that Andrew Tate is really cultivating, you know there's no doubt that the data will show that in many respects kudos to them diverse groups of women are thriving more in post secondary they're increasingly thriving more on in the economy although we still have large sections of you know large amounts of pay inequity but the data show there's been an improvement and so like you know that's an e- that's an easy group to point out, hey they're getting in our way and so I wonder, you know, can I bring it back to to Jen squeeze? And, Umair, you said, like, as a group that focuses on intergenerational unfairness, our lens helps us, you know, I think has things to say about why the Andrew Tate narrative might be attractive, but maybe it also needs to point to us in strategic ways. Like, I think we're also telling people there's something in their way. It's just not a group of individuals. It's a system. It's the broken system. And how do we make the system become a character in the story more effectively for people? How do we make the system... This villain that is in the way—it is the gatekeeper that is obstructing hard work paying off for young people and and for an older demographic to leave the legacy that they can be proud of. I want people to know that's in a, that that thing's in the way, and we do want to slay that. It is villainous.
0: Yeah. Well, actually.
2: So, how can I convince them?
0: Well, this yeah. So actually, this is making me realize that maybe some of my initial framing <laughs> uh, wasn't exactly correct. Because I mean, what some of what you said, Andrea, about. You know that populism being based in sort of a world where it's anti-science, anti-fact, and so on. See, I don't, I don't think that's the case. In fact, they would take the position that they have the facts on their side. You know, uh, the the facts don't care about your feelings. Like that's a that's a important talking point. Mm. Um and that, you know, you have to be rational. You know, like men are rational, women care about their feelings. You know, there's that kind of macho element into in there. Um and then the other thing actually that where I think I was initially wrong when I said that he doesn't really have a systemic critique, I think he does. And I think it's actually quite complicated and, and it kind of moves around. You know, he, he he uses, like, the metaphor of the Matrix, especially now that he's been arrested. It's like, oh, the Matrix is coming after me. Uh, it's interesting because uh, the people who made uh, the Matrix are happen to be two trans women, and he's appropriating their... <laughs> you know, I didn't know that. Really? Yeah, the Wachowskis, yeah. I didn't know that. Uh, but there is something about... And even, you know, when I was... I, I, I've been... Uh, exposed to uh, quite a bit to the anti-vaccine sort of crowd because they came and camped out in my neighborhood here in center Town in in ottawa and you know i would go out and see like their signs and a lot of it was based on this notion that the facts were on their side like there were all these sort of vaccine related debts that were being covered up the system was covering things up you know and you know, we're talking about the system, right? And they they have a system in mind and, and it mm-hmm. and it's this very interesting, you know, I, I also came to this realization while thinking about that stuff is that the the people actually, in some sense, are actually a lot more open minded than I am. <laughs> so there's this like openness to conspiritual sort of idea ideas like, well, you know, maybe it's the 4G conspiracy that we're going to talk about now. And then it's some other random thing that's really, you know, related to big pharma. And it's like, well, those things don't really overlap, but at any given time, we could be open to adopting them. And so. Uh,
2: I think there's, I, I, you know, the conversation has evolved in a range of ways and not exactly as I would have expected when we first started, but it comes back to another theme we have talked about on this podcast, which is we're in a competition for trust. And I think that's what's so interesting about the contemporary moment who people trust is changing. And so Andrew Tate, what the hell has he done to actually attract for at least a decent chunk of the people following him to earn his trust? And why might a group like Jan Squeeze not be earning people's trust? Like, we can't all know all the complexities of every part of every system. And so we need to turn to people who are going to be filters for us and create some efficiency for us by sharing, like, this is the way it is, I know these things. And I think Jen Squeeze is definitely in that business saying, hey, we've got a lot of evidence about how this broken generational system is playing out. And I'm needing you to trust our interpretation, or trust our take trust our representation of what are the facts. But we don't share facts in the same way any longer because we're not sharing. We, you know, the sort of a broad diversity of society. We're not sharing that consistency and like we trust that kind of mainstream media group to be helping filter our facts. We trust the academy to be, you know, honest brokers of the facts. Uh, we trust these kinds of leaders over here as honest brokers. I think we have lost a sense of trust in some of those traditional groups, and and so a group like Jen Squeeze then isn't earning trust. And I guess I would ask back to our listeners. You know what would it take to earn trust? From not you're clearly you're listening to some degree, but others who in your networks who aren't listening. How do we earn their trust? I think that's a critical question for our efforts to win policy victories because we need to grow the power of a powerful constituency in democracy to create the cover to incentivize politicians to respond bravely. So I think it's about trust. And something Andrew Tate's doing is getting some people's trust. Something we're doing isn't.
0: Well, the basis for the trust that he has is his success. So, he's rich, you know, he owns, I don't know how many Bugattis, how many watches, and therefore people should trust him because what he, you know, he's got success by, because of his attitude.
1: But that very thing is also what some, in other circumstances, people would point to as a reason not to trust somebody, right? I mean, just... Off the top of my head just think of the critiques even made about justin trudeau right oh he comes from a rich elite family that you know has been in politics like they've been successful so you can't trust him it's all the vested interest so like there's a context piece there mm-hmm. that i think the public sector i think trust in the public sector is different than uh, or at least how you earn it or how it's perceived is different than you know, what someone like Andrew Tate or others like him are doing on social media where trust almost seems to be perpetuated by <laughs> the number of people who just start like it's almost like it becomes self perpetuating. Like people start following you, you get more and more people and and that's viewed as a badge of legitimacy to a certain degree, almost regardless of the content that you're throwing out there.
2: Don't you think the trust is largely gonna come about kind of unconsciously because of an alignment in values? And there is a growing sense, whether it's in Canada and the States elsewhere, that, you know, there is a frustration with politics. And, you know, whether it's drain the swamp or the politicians are definitely the kind of elite that are the gatekeepers to be resisted. It has become popular, I think, across uh, ideal- parts of the ideological spectrum, perhaps probably more to sort of center right to, you know, have a deep distrust of the world of politics. So gen squeeze is never going to then grow to attract a constituency that has that kind of core value because we're constantly saying, no, we, the solutions actually are in the world of politics. And Umair, you've made this, you've pointed out this challenge to us from your first days with us is you're like, Paul, I don't think you're giving enough uh, credence to why people are cynical and unless we acknowledge the reasons for those cynicism, we're not going to have people help join us. Like, we have to be, if we're rebels with the call, we have to be in the cause. Like, you've got good reason to be cynical. We join you there, and that's part of the reason we want to tear down this broken system and repair it with, re- replace it with something so much better. But maybe we need to, maybe your conversation here is getting us to recognize we need to be better at addressing and engaging the sources of that cynicism and harness that, because we've got a cynicism too when we say the status quo is broken, and a whole bunch of decisions a broad range of us are making are reinforced. We're cynical about that. But I think where we search for solutions then runs aground on many people like, ah, I am totally cynical about where you think we need to find solutions.
0: Well, and just going back to, you know, Andrew Tate sort of using his success, his material success as a means to, to build trust, you know maybe that is a lesson for us in that we can be better at pointing out our successes and saying like, look, at this is the kind of work we've done. This is These are the ways in which we have been successful. New podcast structure. Lead at the beginning. Remember, we've won this. We're winners. <laughs> yeah.
2: Follow us, and then we're going to get into something deep and interesting. But we're winners. Is that the new structure? Because, Mayor, I want that built into the net. Welcome to Jen Squeezes' Hard Truth Podcast, where we, as a group of winners, are now going to talk about...
0: Yeah, how we win. Um,
2: Yeah. How we win. And how you can join us and be a winner, too. <laughs> Not give you a sucker in this intergenerational system.
0: Yeah, well, it's something to think about.
1: <laughs> Honestly, like, this is a different kind of conversation that we embarked on. Uh, as I said, I was nervous going in. But, you know, it's interesting to see how many parallels we can uh, draw between the world of someone like Andrew Tate, which I find extremely distasteful, and the things that we're struggling with as an organization, struggling to gain trust, struggling to convey complexity, struggling to, you know, show people that we have solutions that we're achieving to some degree in the world. So yeah, it was you know, Amer, I guess I'm validating your instincts on our foray into cultural dynamics, culture war kind of conversations and um thinking that yeah, there's it's a it's a different it's a different entry point for us and maybe one that has has some value in terms of trying to make sure that we're we're current and relevant and earning the trust, perhaps, of of those who wouldn't at first look to an organization like Gen Squeeze uh, as a, a source of
2: influence and knowledge. Yeah, and as we organize the podcast in part to invite... You know, those who follow us, um, those who really are engaged with us, that's the people who are listening to our podcast in particular, and we're wanting to let them know, like, how busy we are behind the scenes as we're pursuing these ways, in which we're winners, because we win all these policy victories. And I think this kind of conversation can help people see the deep way in which we are thinking about how to successfully engage and what are the what are the pressure points in society that we're trying to address and we're trying to attract people's attention and you know we think deeply about it we're not always right about it we could be better about it and I guess I'd love to know what our listeners what our listeners would want to contribute to the conversation in the light of what we chatted about today
1: yeah and I think are we putting in place a new way for folks to share those thoughts with us is that right umir
0: yeah yeah people are going to be able to send us uh voice recordings so we'll we'll put that into the description of this episode uh and you can send us a voice message if you have questions comments about what we've talked about and and perhaps we'll play it on uh, an upcoming episode and see if we can respond so yeah let us know what you think onwards